वेलकम टू सिन टॉक The Sin Talkers around the table today discuss the places dotted together. We'll think about places as a scheme and a unit. What makes a place a place and how a place is linked to each other? Is there such a thing as a unit place? Is the notion of distance most fundamental or is proximity always a surrogate? Our place is always a social and a natural phenomenon. Why are species spatially distributed? Is a place different for an insect to a bird to a fish to an elephant and how? What clusters and what repulses? How does infrastructure imagine and shape spaces? How is water different from land? how our place is encoded and how might our conception of a place change in the very near to distant future we are pleased and privileged to have three sin talkers with us here today dr nikhil anand he is an urban anthropologist studying the life of cities by examining their waters he is from university of pennsylvania professor shudipto banerji He is professor of biostatistics. He works on Bayesian modeling of spatial data. He is at UCLA. And Dr. K. Pravin Karanth. He is a phylogenetic biologist with an emphasis on biogeography. He is from ISC in Bangalore. Uh Shudipto, why don't we set the ball rolling with you? Um maybe with with the related notion this notion of proximity distance and so on and um i understand that when you say places or spaces very generally when you look at spatial data um does the notion of distance and proximity always go hand in hand for all sorts of spatial data what is distance as far as you're concerned thank you very much pleasure to be here and uh, pleasure to be with both of you uh good question so obviously we live in a world that is uh, inherently defined by space and time and when as a statistician we look at space we are talking about essentially some kind of referencing with regard to where we are and the most natural definition where, where being location where being location and the most natural definition is uh, the geographic location where we are so for example we are lat right long now, the lat, lat long. long exactly we are in the studio here if i take out my cell phone and press a button i will know exactly the latitude and longitude of of this particular studio and uh, but what we really want to understand is the role that space plays in trying to uh, in explaining uh, certain outcomes or phenomena and in that regard uh what becomes very important is uh, not just where i am but who are uh close to me in geographic space for example the the entities you interact with correct exactly you know so that is in some sense my neighbors and right. uh, and and uh, i will 
define neighbors more broadly, but in the simplest situation, I am sitting very close to the three of you here. Right. Um, so, you know, we are basically almost exactly in one place. Right. But uh, if I am actually observing a habit or a a particular uh, attribute of uh, of uh, a data set, uh, how does space affect that attribute? And in that regard, you raise this question about distance and proximity, and they both become very important. Because proximity, in if it is geographic space, just Euclidean space, lat long, as you pointed out, then it's pretty much simply uh, uh, the distance or how far you are from me as measured by uh, the geometric notion of distance. But it, even that can be made more complex. And that it? can because, be made more complex. Because there is a distance as the crow flies. Absolutely. But there is, you know, Absolutely. All kinds so, of so for example, yes, how do you actually measure distance? So, for example, uh, you know, if you are even uh, using latitude, longitude, and if you want to measure the distance between, let's say, Bombay and New York, you wouldn't really want to measure it using just Euclidean distance right. because that won't be appropriate. You have to take into account the curvature of the Earth right. and that leads to the concept of a geodesic distance. And again, depends on the out. phenomenon and so on. Absolutely. Right. Now, even within Bombay, for example, which is at a f- much finer resolution, so to speak, one city, uh, maybe you don't need to account for the curvature of the Earth, but there, come, uh, you know, depending upon what you are studying, a question uh, might be that what is the most appropriate notion of distance? Are we really going to measure it using just Euclidean distance? Or are we actually going to measure it by the by the Manhattan distance, so to speak, as people like to call it, which is basically the uh, measuring the number of blocks uh, right. that you have to the left and right, the left and right, exactly. Right. So proximity is crucial because the the most common underlying theme of spatial statistics is that if you are my neighbor you are in some ways similar to me. And very broadly, and we'll make this finer as we go, but for what kinds of data are you able to do it with the pure Euclidean distance business? And for what kinds of data do you necessarily need to think of um, the Manhattan distance concept? Yeah, if, for example, uh, you are looking at something that is uh, an attribute such as, let's say, air pollution, Okay, and you have measured a uh, certain pollutant, let's say particulate matter 2.5 or, or ozone or something in the air through monitoring So these stations. are continuous variables. Right, right. continuous so. variables, and you want to interpolate, right. basically try to understand the distribution of ozone over space. Then simply looking at the monitoring station's coordinates and looking at Euclidean distance may not be that bad an idea. Right. Because after all, you know, monitoring ozone is, as you said, continuous. There is a temperature, for example, in right simpler notion. Uh, they're smooth. And so what's could, the opposite? What sorts of data? The opposite could be, let's say, for example, uh, you are uh, traveling, to, you, you want to study access to healthcare. And you want to actually look at... Uh, the uh, Euclidean distance may be two kilometers, but the road distance may be nine. Exactly. And, and so on. You know, right. And so, so there, the Manhattan distance could be more important because there is a, an element of time there as well, latent, that how long will it take, actually take, you know, or, or how many uh, curves do I need to uh, make or how many turns do I have to make to actually reach my destination. Do you worry about this at all? Is this a thing like Manhattan distance as far as species and all are concerned? Or it's obviously species go where they have to, but does this, surely the Euclidean notion of distance must be helpful as you think of spatial distribution of species and so on, but is the yeah, Manhattan it, it, distance... it does make a lot of sense, uh, 
when we talk about dispersal mm. every species has to disperse right and uh, some species can fly so you know they go from one tree to another tree it's just so that's literally the crow flies distance yeah. yeah yeah whereas you know you have other spe- uh, you know ground dwelling species you know depending on what whatever the topography is like to for the same distance you may have to climb up and down up and, and down and have so gradients yes. and ramps and, and this so on. They, all this has an interesting implications uh, in terms of how the distance that these animals can actually disperse and right. and praveen do all birds occupy space in the same way in the sense that you know of course are we over abstracting when we say that you know the distances as the crow flies or is it is it as good for all the birds what i mean is that so this notion of distance for example yeah. so going yeah. from point a to point b i mean do do all the birds occupy space in the same manner oh no no so again uh, depending on the species that you're looking at uh, the dispersal distances the distance to which they can you know fly changes right reasonably right? fly yeah uh and uh, so the whole thing uh, the, uh, that would also then de- determine their territory size right so a small bird like a sunbird for example it has a limited dispersal ability it has a much smaller uh, territory uh, whereas if you look at some of the you know birds like eagles and kites the soaring birds they can fly long distances and then you have migratory birds that can fly even longer distances i think right? the question in a way is yeah. to try and get a better sense of the topography of it is it just yeah. a case of different radii just different radius of occupying uh, territories or yeah. even the topography is different and you know, maybe maybe we can explore this a little bit further as we go mm-hmm. but when you think of infrastructure nikhil is it again we're going to the manhattan distance issue does that does that come into the way of how you think about things or is distance an issue for you at all maybe it isn't or maybe it is yeah it is it is very much an issue i think uh, and thanks for having me on the on, oh, on thank the you for coming it's a pleasure um yeah i was actually thinking a little bit about what uh, shudipto was saying with uh healthcare right um right and you know we can think about different infrastructures um water energy being two but health and education being two others perhaps mm. where um it's not sufficient to be proximate what proximity means actually varies um you can have a hospital within uh, on the next block as it were but you may be very far from accessing it right um depending on your health insurance policies your ability to pay for healthcare and so on so the right? power distance social distance all mm-hmm. of th- those kinds of mm-hmm. things mm. so distance is deeply for for me in the work that i do d- distance and space are deeply uh, inflected through power relationships right and here not only power relationships between humans but also the relationships between humans and technologies and humans and other kinds of non-human animals um if you think about environments more broadly so yes i think distance is like an important way so, to so think about so it's not just geographic territoriality um but hmm um yeah and you know if i'm if i'm thinking um a little bit about what praveen so what is, is a place for you what what is a place um so i th- i think a little bit with the work in uh, geography here where i think about places as moments in processes of making relations right so it's, it's, a, it's an abstract concept but a place is not a process i mean it, it may moment. be some kind of a it's yeah. a kind of mm-hmm. i think i think of it as a moment or an event um in which 
different relationships to your environment, to your kinship network, to your house is established or or is is you know is real realized. Um, so a place here is just a, is a moment in a process at which um, people and people but there, because there's flux, but there's also stability. There yeah. is some kind of stationarity to it. Yeah, um, that's a particular reading of place, right? Where mm-hmm. we think of a place as being somewhere you're rooted. Mm-hmm. Let's say, right, a, a place as being somewhere that you're um, um, that you have deep ties to all these metaphors of being embedded and rooted mm-hmm. um, are deep in our talkings and conversations about place. But that itself is a particular understanding of place that's very much bound up with the idea of territory right. and territoriality, if you think about it from the biological sciences, right? Um, but that itself is a historical accomplishment over time. Not always have people been placed in the same way and not always have non-humans been placed in the same way. So it's our certain expectations of what we see as desirable that also make a place a place. Um, and those expectations are a product of the times that we live in as well. But there is a non-metaphorical place for you, right? I mean, do you do think of the earth and the land and the water and the and the locale and the environment? Is, um, yeah, very much. I mean, it takes a lot of work to make a place. It's not just metaphorical or imaginary, right? To mm-hmm. actually, like, have a place in Mumbai, I need for water to be made to flow there every day. Mm. It takes a lot of work to make a place a place, um, a work by not just the people living in the place, but people all around them, environments all around them um, as well. So, you mean infrastructurally and otherwise? Yeah, yeah. So I, I do, do, think do species live in places? I mean, so when you say spatial distribution, there's one way in which you could visualize this as, you know, a, a group of X number of species, entities, and you know, it's that group that moves around. Or do they live in a place? Is there such a thing as endemicity? That, you know, this species lives here in this geographic place. Yeah, the, uh, endemicity is... Uh, there are many species that are endemic to a particular region, particular hill range. Uh, but to me, a place uh, in biogeography, uh, or even broadly speaking in biology, can be looked at at multiple levels, mm-hmm. right? So it can be uh, a niche of a species... Mm-hmm. Right, it could be at a slightly higher level the habitat, right? So certain species are found only in evergreen forest, uh, so that's the higher level. With, but within evergreen forest, in a particular niche, again we are going down. Uh, in but again, that when you say niche, Praveen, you do no. mean it in a in the sense of a place again. It's it's a it's a it's a specific. Maybe it's a smaller zone or a smaller yeah smaller territory. zone within that habitat. Sure. Yeah, and then you can go further up. So where it's a sub habitat of sorts. So yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Crudely speaking, one could call it sub habitat. Now above the habitat, you can get into you know uh, biogeographic zones. Mm-hmm. Right. So for example, in Australia, you only have marsupials. I mean, largely you have marsupials. Marsupials are not found elsewhere. There are a couple of species found in South America, but in Australia it's largely marsupials, and marsupials are largely endemic to Australia. So the place to look for marsupials is Australia. Now so the that, interesting question is, uh, why are species spatially distributed? What is it about a place that makes species... One is to kind of state it as a fact, but the other is to think about the reason behind it. So why is... Why are certain species there in a certain place? Why so? Is it is it just because they happen to be in that habitat? They have the vegetation, the biota, the food. Is it as straightforward as that, or there's something something deeper? 
Well, I look at it at two levels, mm-hmm. right? So one is the immediate reasons that you pointed out, sure. you know, uh, habitat, uh, and you know other competitors, whether they are present or not, predators, and you know, so those are the immediate sort of. Uh, Uh, reasons that crop up in mind. What What's the deeper reason for the other reason might be more historical. What happened in the past, mm-hmm. right? So, for example, uh, we don't have tigers in in Sri Lanka, even though the habitat is there. And why why aren't there tigers in Sri Lanka? Because by the time tigers got to South India, the the line bridge between India and Sri Lanka. was was the bridge uh, was gone the bridge was gone <laughs> it was under under the ocean right so the ti- tigers couldn't really cross they can't into, swim across they can't i mean it's just too wide it's right too wide. yeah so that's a historical reason for why they're absent there but oh. still present in india right oh. uh, and that's where sort of biogeography comes in you know where we try to look at uh, what are the you know events in the past geological past but how far so you mean geological past yes, it could yes, go going like back millions, millions of millions years. of years yeah. so there could be species in southern india which are identical to species in africa uh in africa in in madagascar mm-hmm. for example india and madagascar were a single landmass and these two landmasses were then connected to africa right uh the indo malagasy landmass separated from africa around 110 million years ago and then india and madagascar separated from each other so there are still some lineages in india that are are uh, related to lineages in madagascar right and if you look at the distance between india and madagascar it's really quite quite some distance and these lineages are not found in africa africa is just 300 kilometers from madagascar right Whereas so India, it, it, it is it is geographic distance now. They may be with yeah. thinking of distance, but at some point in time they were proximate. They, they were the same yeah, place. Exactly, right? exactly. I mean, yeah, hundred million years ago. Yeah, eighty million they, years ago they were together. They were right next to each other, right? And that sort of has uh, has shaped the distributions of certain lineages. Uh, and Praveen, if you and your colleagues didn't know this history, this geological history, yeah, and you, you were just given the DNA data, the species, and so on, would you be able to derive it? would you be able to derive this derive the fact that these seem to be you know co-inhabitants of the same place or space yeah well one one can build uh, uh, phylogenies from from dna sequence data and that will tell you you know how species how good is that i mean or, or how 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 good is that estimation that you know how how do you know for a fact that madagascar and india were together i mean like oh so that that part you know to infer uh, geological history from phylogeny yeah that's uh, that's a whole different ball game is, right? is it is it shady uh, science or it's okay well i the problem there is one can always invoke dispersal hmm right one can always say oh well if it is a bird one can say that maybe somehow it migrated to india from madagascar more recently but, uh, but that ain't happening with like large mammals and so on no yeah. these tigers couldn't manage to cross over true, to sri lanka true true so. true but there are for smaller uh, vertebrates there are many examples of these smaller vertebrates managing to uh, cross oceanic barriers on um, you know floating log for example right yeah do they yeah but but, but a so, whole bunch of them need to go across to go there and reproduce well you and just so need on. a gravid female to land up <laughs> uh, uh, you know in in the uh, the next landmass and you know if she survives and uh, has babies 
and you have a completely new lineage now related to a remote landmass you know uh people haven't really observed this this happens once in a million years or even uh it's probably very rare but um when you look at the dna sequence data uh if there is a very high divergence between species in madagascar and india very then one could say okay probably these two species shared a common ancestor when the two landmasses were together whereas if you land up getting sister species in india and madagascar that are you know genetically very similar very little uh, divergence then will one would have to invoke these other scenarios right. of dispersal after separation of india and madagascar to the statistician yeah. uh, what does it mean for two places to be similar oh that's actually a very good question and in fact it uh, you know the both uh, nikhil and praveen i was listening to both of them and uh, many of these cases you know uh, got me thinking about what exactly is proximity and mm-hmm. so for example and that's exactly what you were asking so for the statistician usually it will be very case specific just to follow up on what uh, what uh, nikhil was saying a few minutes ago um you could have access to healthcare you could have two people who live very close to each other but uh may actually uh, their their socioeconomic conditions may be very different and access to healthcare even though there may be a hospital that is pretty much equidistant from both the uh, both of them uh one person may have many more resources in the form of insurance in the form of uh, education in the form of awareness right. as opposed to his or her neighbor right and and in that case you see uh the the concept of pure geographic proximity will not really be a very appropriate measure because because the if you're looking at the propensity to seek out healthcare there are many other factors that are in fact governing this person's uh, urge or the or the eagerness or the propensity to go out and seek healthcare so we have to be as statisticians you know that's why we will always be talking to people like praveen and people like uh, nikhil to to basically figure out exactly what is it that we are inferring about and what is the information that we do have and what is it that is uncertain and not known and we try to come up with modeling that will essentially help us get there and proximity needs to be defined very carefully uh, otherwise you know if, if, if as as in this example uh, it could be completely wrong in in for example pravin's example i mean you know you could have sri lanka and india if you look at it at some scale scale becomes important too and perhaps we'll have an opportunity to discuss that later but at some scale sri lanka and india are neighbors right yet there is a geographic barrier the lack of a bridge or lack of a landmass connecting the two which probably is manifesting um uh itself through the very disparate distribution of species as habitats are they very similar india and sri lanka um, quite similar are, are there quite many similar. common species there must be oh uh, well it's just that some species haven't made the Uh, yeah, yeah. so the historical are, elephants have made it right. uh, a lot of the herbivores have made it sure. uh, leopards have made it um, jackals so, and all so of that so they are neighbors in many respects many yes respects. yes and habitats are yeah. also quite similar Correct. Sure. but if you are for example looking at investigating tigers say for example sure. you know the spatial distribution of tigers and if you just account for geographic proximity 
you may be missing out on a lot of things i mean in a very if you didn't know this order. fact ex exactly. ante exactly. you would you would say that you know sure exactly. tigers must be there exactly. because elephants happen to be there exactly. or something like that exactly so that is why you know uh, i mean to take this uh, to a slightly more abstract statistical level right. we always try to look at the signal and the noise mm -hmm. and what happens is say for example a geographic barrier like the indian ocean or the pox strait you know that 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 for example is creating a barrier between the two land masses will in fact contribute to the signal because that's a very definitive structure if for example praveen as he was saying you know if the uh, if the geological history tells us something about uh, that 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 can help praveen clearly infer about why a particular species is uh, is prevalent or uh, you know existing in certain places and not in the other so in your data sets how would that signal manifest itself Uh, for example, you will, uh, you know, the the most common cases. If you, if you're coming from a different planet and did not know anything about tigers, you would probably see, oh, wait a minute, there are tigers here, but no tigers here. That's uh, 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 a binary case, right? I mean, one and zero, essentially, as extreme as possible. Right. Presence and absence. Presence and absence. absence. Um, but the question is, okay, what is the probability? You know, when we are uncertain about these things, right? Uh, you do not know for sure. Now, of course, now you know we know everything about tigers uh, in Sri Lanka that they are not there. but i'm saying that if you just uh, as, again imagine yourself to be coming from a different planet and do not know anything about the species then basically you would like to know what is the probability of finding a tiger in sri lanka as opposed to not hmm. you know and that's what a statistical model will try to help but our idea is also to try to look at where the signal is and look at geographic barriers look at geological history look at socio economic conditions for trying to uh, seek out healthcare and keep them as a signal and then look at the noise and then try to see if space i bring in the word surrogate here because i feel it's appropriate here to say if space is a surrogate for certain latent or unobserved variables that will go uh, 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 some way in explaining what we are seeing Mm -hmm. So in other words okay I know about socioeconomic disparities I know about education but maybe there's something else also that is uh, that 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 space is acting as a surrogate for that I have not seen in my data and and therefore what I will do is my model will try to balance between the signal and put some structure into the noise part so that the spatial dependence comes in and then look at a, a heat map or some kind of uh, statistical diagnostics to try to understand what is it that i'm missing is there is there something fundamental about distance would you say that if you're closer you brought in the notion of probability which is some kind of a proxy for that presumably um can it be thought of as a law can it be thought of well so so the yeah that's a good question you know there's something called the first law of geography uh, which actually uh, ironically i mean it has different interpretations but spatial statisticians essentially like to talk about it as separation of the signal and the noise but the key question becomes okay so the signal is clear okay it comes from experts like praveen and nikhil so what is this first law the first law basically says that what you are observing essentially can be split up into a signal and a noise sure that's as simple as that sure. and in the most cases it's an additive structure observations is equal to signal plus noise sure 
Whether if it was that simple, then frankly speaking, statisticians would not have been in business. Yeah, but, but where they seem to be in business, clearly. <laughs> yeah. Well, at least as of now. Uh, <laughs> but where this becomes uh, very subtle, I think, is in in the examples that Praveen was giving. For example, you know that okay, you I can explain some part of it, but maybe there will be parts of it which I cannot explain as to why the species is behaving like that, and to try to. Talk to Praveen and ecologists and try to see, okay, wait a minute, let's see what's going on in that noise part. And if we can actually extract some structure from that noise and that structure from that noise that we seek to extract is spatial structure. Mm -hmm. Let's see if geographic proximity can somehow explain more of the variation. And if it does... How do we model that? How do we, what is space? You know, how do I incorporate space into that that noise, okay, that, into that structure? That is where, you know, this distance or this proximity comes in. We can either, we need to work out a model where we will have a well-defined notion of neighbors or proximity. And very often that is uh, represented adequately enough in many cases, perhaps not appropriately in all cases, but adequately enough in many cases by distance. Is all data spatial data? All real life? Uh, all, yeah, all, so, all underlying? Well, see, as I said at the very beginning, you know, we live in a space-time world. So obviously, whenever you're collecting data, whatever data is being collected, there is space associated with it because you can always refer to the location from where that data is being collected. But to answer your question, from the statistical perspective or the, from the statistician standpoint... It has to have causal Power or one like. is that and the other is association is space important in the data analytic perspective if it is then we call it spatial data and there are ways to test it that's the whole idea you know we build a spatial model we build a we build a simple model we compare the two models and we try to see if indeed space is playing a role in it is space important nickel yes important <laughs> in the word yeah um very much and it was like it's been really generative to hear this conversation um Two things um, I think jumped out. Um, um, first, from Praveen, thinking about like how histories are key to the understanding of spatial processes, right. and even like the conversation about the niche. Um, right. The niche itself is a relational concept. I mean, you can make sense of it spatially, but it's evacuated of meaning unless you think of the others, uh, species, other populations, uh, other genuses, and so on, that are around. Um, the particular population that is in a particular niche, right? So again, there it's like relational as well. Um, but so to understand space, um, I think like from Praveen, I, I get you have to sort of like understand both history and also relationality in the present moment. And then the relationality is key to sort of understanding. What do you mean, Nikhil, when you say relationality? Um, what, what What is it? That is a good question. So a relation is a... Because one is to just say that, you know, I mean, because obviously there are different kinds of interactions. Yeah. There is, we've touched upon the notion of distance and proximity. Mm -hmm. um, I would describe relations as constitutive of populations or species, right? So a relationship of um, friendship, a relationship of kinship is what makes me as an individual person. It actually gives shape to... Um, to a singularities. So singularities can only be made sense of 
through relations. Because what is very interesting, in the, even in the way you were trying to define place earlier, was in terms of relations. Right. So somehow relations are primary. I mean, right. One doesn't have to be too yeah. hung up on these things, but relations yeah. seem to be primary and right. the location rather seems to be derived from it. Exactly. Some That's kind of a knot or whatever, some kind of a network. And and, and I, uh, this is a beautiful point uh, that Nikhil made because, you know, in the mathematical uh, structures as well, there is this very formal notion, there's a very formal notion of relations. So I am related to you uh, is, is, is modeled, you know, and, and in, in the very simple case, if I'm your neighbor, I'm related to you would be a very simple spatial model. But so what does it mean? So related to you by on, on what? It has to be on some dimension or parameter, right? Distance alone is not a... Not necessarily, right, you're right. I mean, so because distance, I'm, I could be standing next absolutely. to somebody on a railway station, but that's not a relation. No? Right, I mean, so, so, so there are two ways to look at this. One is to actually define a relation and you could, for example, say that, okay, under certain metrics of socioeconomic status, uh, education level, and so on, I am your neighbor if we are similar. If you are looking at social behavior based upon uh, uh, social networks, I am related to you if you are my friend in Facebook. If you, uh, Does that, it, uh, that is space too, by the way, you know, for me, because that's not geographic space, but in some abstract level, Whenever there is a concept of proximity through a relation, I am related to so, you. So, I mean, to put it another way, if relations are primary, is, are interactions even below that? I mean, is, is it defined in terms of interactions? I would, I would describe relation in terms of interactions, right? Across mm. which there is give and take. Mm, now, the right. give and take could be material, it could be affective, it could right. be imaginative, right? Right. But if there is give and take, there's a relation. Um, right. That's how I would think about it. Yeah. And that that relation is primary, primary to the constitution of the object or the person um, or the population, whatever the unit is that emerges out of those relations. Um, that's how I describe it. So how does one capture that? Into, you've thought about cities a little bit. So if you think of water, how does one carry these intuitions there? How does one think of... Right. So so in that... In is that, water, for example, obviously the kind of relationships that... Obviously, one has social relationships and so on, which is different. But is, are the water networks tying the city up in a certain kind of way? Yeah, very much. So I think the water networks are, I mean, thinking again with the powers of history, are emergent out of historical processes and ongoing relationships mm -hmm. between engineers and chaviwalas and citizens and municipal councillors. But they're also emerging out of relationships between the city and its water catchment dams in Shahpur district in Thane. Another place. Another place, right? So this, the, the place, the city of Mumbai, emerges through relationships not only within it, but also between it and its peripheries or areas which are peripheralized through the provisioning of water. So, so here water is very much... Uh, exchanged to constitute not only cities and the city limits. Um, historically, Mumbai emerged, the city of Mumbai emerged as a municipal body to manage water distribution in the 1860s. Oh, that's so. And so, so you very much see the unit of the city, the political unit of the city emerging around the management and exchange of water. And you see that continuing So today. that kind of organization was necessary for that kind of a network to take root. Exactly, almost, right? exactly. And then the city is then, and then the, but the citizens in the city are also constituted through that exchange 
of water across these different geographies, but also across these different polities. Um, but what is interesting is that there's also this whole notion of direction, right? So water flows from A to B. Mm-hmm. Um, and so obviously there is a certain way in which Mumbai, for example, has got constituted, but it changes something back at the source, does it? Very much. Yeah, so people like to joke. I mean, when I was doing this work, uh, engineers would oftentimes talk about how water flowed to the city almost inexorably through gravity, mm-hmm. that there were very few pumps. But actually, water is, in Mumbai especially, always flowing uphills and not downhills, right? And up-power topographies. And it takes a tremendous amount of work to make sure that water reaches the 35th floor for building but does not reach the farm that's very close to the water catchment area um, in Shahpur Thani, which is about 40, 50 kilometers away. So, so there's a m- tremendous amount of work that is taken that it takes to make Mumbai a place, but also, as I argue, to unmake the agricultural areas around Mumbai as places. Um, if you think about how cities are made, it's oftentimes by these relationships of drawing or taking, um, not only materials like water or construction materials like sand, but also labor. Right, so these processes are put to work through organized it a projects. It of sorts where things are falling in. Yeah, yeah. Is is direction important in the way you think of how species? I know you spoke of dispersal. Um, does it always have directionality? I mean, at at a, at a broad level, at a high level, when you look at it from a distance, um, like right. if there are certain species which are endemic to a certain region and over a very long period of time, via evolution and so on, through accidents of history, do they always? Is there a tendency to radiate out, gravitate out, go out, or why, after so many millions of years of evolution? Species still still are spatial. We haven't got all mixed up. Do you, do you find that surprising? You know what I mean? Yeah, because yeah, yeah. That's uh, I, I guess it's not terribly surprising because they are adapted to the habitats where they are found. Um, because the habitats are not getting mixed up. They yeah, are, they yeah. Retain a so the, kind of there's, a, there's a clear cut spatial separation of all these habitats along altitudinal and longitudinal belts. Uh, so, you know, the species can't just move into a completely different habitat. Um, so that that to me is not very surprising. I would like to comment yeah, on something sure. that uh, Nikhil just uh, uh, talked about, which is relationships, right? And what's interesting in, in biogeography, and there we bring in distance uh, also, is uh, species or individuals of a species that are in closer proximity tend to be more closely related, mm-hmm. right? And uh, so you get this population structure within species. Uh, there are you know, clusters of individuals which are more closely related. Uh, and also geographically, they are close to each other, right? And then within uh, certain so we, habitats... We, we are a spatial species as well. Yeah, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Even yeah. our kinship networks and so true, on. True, true, true. And then within, say, a particular habitat, you'll have related species, Right, and within a biogeographic zone, again you have sort of related species at a much much higher level, right? So there's a very clear so, cut so, you know, relationship a, between uh, genetic relatedness and uh, distance. Right. So even yeah. in the same habitat, if there are several species, it's quite likely that the species themselves between them 
they are more are closely more related than more, less yeah yeah so yes. there's some kind of your first law yeah. of geography yeah. and, and, and yeah. that's true and yeah. if i i'm just uh, taking on from uh, where pravin just uh, what pravin just mentioned uh, in many cases and you mentioned this too uh, you know when the distribution is continuous like temperature and so on species distribution also this is very very common you know when there's a smooth distribution essentially where mm-hmm. i am very much like your neighbor distance actually is a very good surrogate so that's why yeah, the most popular spatial statistical models in ecology uh, and environmental sciences by and large are still based on distances mm-hmm. but in in cases where uh, you know space is clearly a surrogate for other factors uh, as in nikhil's examples of uh, access to healthcare or even in urban planning you know where where if you want to really understand what is going on behind uh the the uh, distribution of water and so on there's so many factors that in such cases space is perhaps uh resembling some sort of uh, of uh something else in fact which which may or may not have been observed and the whole idea is to try to then basically lo- say okay what is it that space is representing or for so for example healthcare systems mm. or real estate markets right. or thing are, are these all spatial they are all spatial for sure uh, but they are a little more subtle and they different from the type of spatial data that we see in ecology and so, so what on. do you have in mind so say for example uh, you mentioned real estate uh, data you know well you could have in a metropolis like bombay or for that matter uh, you know new york city or in many other places you can have a uh, uh, very very expensive high rise fancy apartments but right next to it you could actually have uh, very very uh, modest uh, uh, homes you know or or uh, um, even slums in in the in 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 uh, uh, poorer countries and so if you just look at distance and try to interpolate a spatial distribution you will be creating a lot of bias and and spurious uh, results but um, but what you can do for example is you can basically so that that sort of a thing is that is that the presence absence kind of point again like in, the one you were discussing a, a while yes, ago yes except that exactly except that the barrier is not as well defined as say for example the uh, a water body or so on Because they're right next to each other, but the, here what is going on? The barrier may be virtual, but it may be very concrete. And, right? and, and exactly, and mm. and here the barrier it is could be a regulation, right? Could be. Number one is that there could be a political thing, but also, you know, when you try to model these sorts of things, you would not just look at uh, proximity or uh, geographic proximity, but proximity would be defined by attributes. Right. So does the uh, you know the do the two homes? What are the features that they have together? What do you is have there a mind? swimming pool, for example? Right. You know, or is there uh, is is this a high rise apartment that has 24 hour water supply uh electricity uh, security system um you know uh, what is the for example the median household income in that apartment complex you know on two two complexes that may be close by but they may still have uh, very different uh, uh, household incomes i mean i've seen this even in other markets including recently uh, we were looking at real estate markets in johannesburg south africa which again is a city where you have very rich neighborhoods right next to uh, rather uh, you know poor and uh, and modest neighborhoods so you see a discontinuity the term you used uh, was continuity and that i think is a very very important uh, so if you have two real estate class- stores or even let's let's just even reduce it to buildings and if they were identical it had you know all all of your attributes but they were just located in two very different places 
um so there's only one variable which is different now right then so then you would yeah. explain the differential between real estate prices as being entirely because of where they're located you know what i mean yeah i know what you mean and uh, yes they're clearly that's not i mean yeah, if they're otherwise i mean you know if it is more like leaving everything else the same hmm. if it is just the two locations that are different then obviously location would be a governing factor there but if in most cases you know if you think a little harder it will also be a surrogate in some sense because it could be that why is one location more expensive than the other it yep. is perhaps because it is more uh, developed in certain ways maybe access to supermarkets maybe access to good roads maybe access to good schools maybe access to the uh, airport maybe to the mass transit you know there there are always factors even if there would always be relations no nothing yeah, exactly. can exist yeah. there are always going on, to be on an island but see not not in example not not for example if you're looking at something as pure as temperature yeah. where you are sitting you know or, or next door the temperature and the temperature here is going to be pretty much the same so i'm saying that all i'm trying to say is that in some cases distance is a very very nice good solid measure species distribution being one of them ecology largely being one of them where it's entirely appropriate but in many other cases real estate uh, healthcare access you're right that uh, you know there are uh, far the many layers to it i mean relations as you, as nikhil mentioned is a very complex thing you know it's 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 a good question but it's not easy to answer and there could be many factors uh, that go into the definition of what is proximate so what creates uh, you had something to say nikhil no just to like add to that maybe it's like maybe i'm um, shadowing the question you know if, if you think of the example of two buildings yeah it's not just are they built with the exact same materials and are they of the exact same height quality and so on but they will still be differentiated in different places because of what's around in and under them right um around could be transit networks uh, under could be water networks inside could be in mumbai vegetarian and non-vegetarian eaters right, right? which will then give it different kinds of value and different kinds of um distancing operations i guess is what you're thinking of it right. um that will be at work um that will make them maybe not as continuous um and but more of more dis- more can be explained more by way of this juncture perhaps so you know in the world i think relational ma- matrices are such that it's very hard to find identicals for which um, at least in the social worlds that i work with that make um distance a pure and generative marker without the context of uh interpretation right um i'm thinking also of 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 uh the example of thinking about niches like to find out from the experts what else is going on how can we make sense of this data given your expertise right um so both in the social and the natural sciences um space needs to be situated in a certain set of contextual understandings that then give its um measures power you know um that then makes you could say it makes sense to study this spatially because and that because is very important um and it's where the contextual understanding comes in i think what is interesting is that there aren't an infinite number of places and again we are trying to be less metaphorical there are there are you can enumerate the number of places so it seems like once they get going for whatever reason that could be by dictat or fiat or whatever in the beginning or some 
historical accident. Yeah, they have the they have this habit of clustering, or maybe there's some kind of repulsion at work in some. Kind yeah, of there 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 can be, and uh, you know. Uh, but before I get to repulsion, I I do want to mention uh, just one other point uh, from a from a statistician standpoint. You know, it's also very important to figure out what exactly is the inferential objective. Mm-hmm. So what I mean by that is, are you actually trying to simply explain the data or the variation that you see in terms of other factors? Or are you also trying to predict? Do you want a predictive model or do you want an explanatory model? Mm-hmm. And this is, uh, you know, not just in spatial statistics, but basically in the whole subject of statistics, you know, uh, modeling modeling is based upon explanatory models and predictive models. So in cases like when you want to actually try to predict the probability of finding a particular species in a particular location, mm-hmm. or where if you want to, for example, uh, predict temperature at a new location, you know, given you have observed temperature, you know, there is a certain smoothness assumption that you can make and, and, and those assumptions can lead to models that are very good predictive models. Of course, those models are going to be very different if I am actually going to be looking at, let's say, predicting real estate house prices at uh, a new location. Right. Because the, the very nature of these variables, you know, you don't have to be an expert in this. I mean, commonsensically, they're very different. Temperature is, of course, very different from real estate home prices. So the statistician's job is to try to understand the distributions of these variables that he or she is looking for, the inferential objectives, and build the model accordingly. So in some cases, distance purely distance-based models will be entirely appropriate. In some cases, uh, they will f- be inadequate and you w- might want to look more into the signal. Where's mm-hmm. the notion of time in all this? Because obviously there is evolution. And, and, you uh, know, if you say all data is spatial, all data is probably spatio-temporal. Absolutely. Now maybe, yeah. maybe time moves more slowly. No, absolutely. Or, You're absolutely right. All the, we live in space and time. But again, the question becomes... Uh, how important for the particular questions uh, is, that we is are answering is time, time g- going to be? Because, uh, you know, in many cases, I mean, if, if, for example, the issue is about trying to predict over time, uh, uh, let's say the hospitalization rates in a Mumbai hospital, all right, and you are looking at it maybe on a daily basis and you're trying to see, okay, are there seasonal spikes, for example, in asthma hospitalization? Because, you know, seasonality has obviously uh, uh, an, an impact on asthma, uh, children's asthma, say, for example, to be more specific. Anyway, the notion of seasonality is slightly distinct from that notion of that arrow of time. Right, time, it, is, time it is, it is. You're right, from you're right. But, you know, it'll go, it, it goes in cycles. Seasonality Do you think of time? Do you think of time? Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, Do well, you think of space the the species distribution in spatio-temporal terms, or spatial is good enough? Well, if you are again, it would depend on the kinds of questions that you are trying to address. Uh, if it is purely sort of a short-term ecological study, then time m- might not be a big uh, component there. Uh, but in biogeography, for sure. Right. Uh, because with time, climatic conditions change. Uh, that you know can result in contraction of certain kinds of habitat, expansion of other kinds of habitats, and that will in turn result in you know changes in the distributional patterns of many other species. Uh, so time is definitely because uh, what is interesting, Praveen, is huh. and I don't know what you have to say to this is that there is speciation with time. More species come to be, or something to that effect. Yeah. Um, 
Is there an equivalent of that within habitats? Right? As are there more habitats coming to be with different points in time? You know what I mean? Because obviously, species interact with the world around them. They interact with the with the physical environment around them. No. Uh, so, what, the other way to put it is that are uh, is the number of species correlated to the number of habitats. You know, do you know what I mean? Huh. Yes. 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 Um. So if 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 Earth was one round smooth sphere yeah. with the same temperature everywhere, and you know, it was a nice lawn grass all around it, and it was just one, would there be just one species? In you know what I mean? Of course. Then you need two because somebody's going to, yeah. and so on and so on and so on. I mean, is there True. what's the relationship between so habitats I, and species? I I, I and guess. And it's a semi-mathematical question. One is trying to access the intuition there. Yeah, yeah. I think more than habitat per se. Uh, I think what's important is what kind of habitat would support the most number of niches. The most number of niches. Yeah, mm-hmm. because end of the day, a species is occupying a particular niche. Mm-hmm. Right. So uh, say if. the whole uh, earth is only one kind of habitat say evergreen rainforest and if that supports you know more number of niches than if it were temperate forest right then you would have more species uh, in the in the case of uh, evergreen rainforest um now what people have also observed but do species uh, live strictly in their niches or habitats or they have a habit of sneaking into the other and I mean, of course their different species are different but yeah because there must be an element of adaptation right so when you say that you know climate change the species yeah, is going extinct yeah but then but or? the other niches are occupied by other species right sure. so there there's also that competitive exclusion only if there's some extinction event mm-hmm. then maybe one can expand one's niche right uh, but there's another interesting uh, uh, sort of uh, point that i want to make here and in that is uh, people have also observed that um, uh speciation rates tend to be higher in tropical areas right. right because overall productivity is higher um and uh so species have more number of generations in a given unit time period more number of generations would then mean you can accumulate more number of mutations so by and large your speciation rates are higher in the tropics than in in the temperate areas right so if the whole whole uh, planet were to be tropical and what comes first and is uh-huh. is that because there are more niches as you were pointing out a little while ago or uh-huh. more species end up creating or identifying more niches again i think one is trying to clearly life is not as straightforward yeah. as they leading to be and one has to be very careful trying to be a physicist with a biologist so one gets that um but you know what i'm coming yeah from. yeah yeah but you know so the the thing is that uh, higher speciation rates for example in plants would would result in more number of plants right now that will have a cascading effect on insects that are dependent on these plants sure. so if you have 10 different species of plants right you can actually potentially have at least 10 different species of uh, insects right right each one specializing on a particular plant and each plant can then be uh, you know sort of a niche of that one particular uh, insect species right so the two are sort of linked uh, and this i'm sure a feedback loop there right um but uh, so i think if uh, you know if if it all were sort of tropical rainforest we would have definitely higher 
species uh, numbers what's you know? your intuition on this i think what we're trying to put our finger on nikhil is that do places somewhat more generally or niches if you prefer that word um yeah. or notion does it have a multiplicative tendency right yeah. is there a tendency to no, this uh, is if if you started with something nice and flat and singular yeah. would it invariably over time end up developing variety yeah so do, you know what yeah. i mean no something like the at the same time there seem to be somewhat countervailing forces like clustering yeah. a place becomes larger and so on so yeah. what's your instinct so i'm thinking of like probably thinking about like the the niche and the species right but of course what the species is and what the niche is depends on what you're studying right so the grass is a species um if you're studying grasses and maybe the insect is a niche that part of the niche that gives the grass its particular form and function and 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 moment in the process and and vice versa right and this is what i mean why it's kind of important to think relationally because what the project is whether time is seasonal or as an arrow as you put it right depends on the project and the process that you're trying to understand right right um uh, it makes sense to think of time as unidirectional for some processes and as seasonal um for others so i think um so it, it really is like um i'm 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 kind of being a little open ended here deliberately because it's really that the question that is asked or the process that is to be followed or the meaning that is to be made that makes um makes the 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 temporal the spatial temporal um um scale evident right um questions of scale or resolution only make sense um with regard to particular projects as well whether mumbai is a unit or this building is a unit or the state is a unit depends on the kind of process that you are or the project that you're trying to understand um so you can make sense of like um maharashtra is a unit when you're thinking about rivers but you cannot necessarily make um maharashtra as a unit when you're thinking about the ways in which um water flows to particular buildings and settled bastis in mumbai right and so so what the appropriate scale and spatial temporal scale is it kind of emerges out of um the the project that you're trying to understand and even the same unit or the same individual whether human or otherwise could occupy different places in different niches at different points in time right right i mean we can think of polities as well right and like what the relevant political unit is whether it's the community uh, whether it's the the religion whether it's the um neighborhood or the city depends on what process you're trying to run govern understand and so on right and so there, so i would say that there could be multiple numbers of places i i talk about the cities of mumbai right mm. um as a the mumbai is a plurality not a singularity mm. because different kinds of infrastructure for example make different cities in mumbai um and make mumbai a multiplicity of cities um so so i so i i can resist here and, and and whichever way you may look at it and i i know you're resisting it and the idea is not yeah. to push the envelope but over a period of time again physical time okay mm-hmm. going from 19th century to 21st and if you just think of it broadly with that broad brush even this multiple cities of mumbai do they end up being more cities i mean do are because there are more people there are more niches more um locales more systems of yeah social action and yeah i you think know, one is trying to just understand whether there is 
a multiplicative tendency of course yeah. one understands that it is a, yeah so you can say in one obviously there has to be some underlying basis of reproduction right yeah. places also reproduce themselves yeah. because human beings are dying all the time yeah you can see there more cities in mumbai by just thinking of the numbers of communities increasing as population of city increases over time mm-hmm. you can also say there are fewer cities in mumbai over time as real estate uh, regulations harmonize real estate regimes right, right. um for example uh, in the late 17th and early 18th century there were different kinds of regimes governing the distribution of water in different parts of the city mm-hmm. dhobi talao had a different patron right um this mithi river had a different set of caretakers and so on those numbers of communities were reduced by the production of a single water network and that's become more centralized and more centrally exactly. planned so mm-hmm. thinking about it from the hydraulic perspective you can say that there are there are fewer cities now than there were 100 years ago right you know um thinking of the cable regime or the media regime you might see have the exact opposite account right um so that's that's kind of how i would vacillate on that issue <laughs> and and, and just because there is a tendency to centralize in 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 hydraulic systems doesn't necessarily mean that there would be similar tendencies in other systems of right. course if they're all sovereign actions and so on then yeah. maybe that tendency could be common but obviously yeah. there are all sorts and of even the effort to centralize the hydraulic system by the production of one large hydraulic engineering department in mumbai and the piping of uh, 3.5 billion liters a day uh, it has not replaced all the other systems mm. in mumbai right so there's a kind of layering effect that you have often times in places where of course this is the biggest system and perhaps the most powerful but tank operators wells uh continue to work in the city and reproduce their respective local authorities even in this present moment and again topographically if you look at this tanker well system a well system or a tanker system or whatever what kind of spaces are they somewhat spatially again are they just some kind of uh, you know has a center has a radius kind of thing or yeah and you know one has to be a little careful trying to do too much metaphysics i, yeah. I, I get it yeah no they are very much centers of power and he they who control the water control um and control access to it um have more power than others so you can think of it in a center periphery kind of way but at the same time do places overlap places overlap um and just, just at the same time um they are not the only ones in control so Uh, a third of mumbai's water is leaking we might n- say no one really knows right um but that leakage is also generative of all kinds of other authorities beyond the municipal state right right, right. so other so economies exactly other. exactly but places do overlap right so places that are constituted by the well water system are also hydrated by the <laughs> um hydraulic system of the right. city engineering department so you have two different regimes as particular to water like just one infrastructure in the same place a constitution of two places and two kinds of publics do ecosystems overlap of course when is we can say temperate and tropical and arid and semi arid i mean but are there overlapping regions there must be no i mean there is no one line that separates a certain kind of habitat from another are there overlapping ecosystems overlapping oh, habitats oh yeah yeah so you 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 often have transition zones so you know when you're going from say what kind uh, of places are those uh, from evergreen forests to to deciduous forests uh you have a transition zone that's called the moist deciduous forest that's for fine but you yeah. know if you think of it in terms of species distribution huh. um you were trying to do some statistic and math on it 
Yeah. Is the is the species distribution different in those on those cusp areas or yeah, do so unique species live in those? Well, or they just often something very interesting happens no, no in man's land. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, I'm glad you asked this question because often what you find in these transition zone is hybridization uh, between species that are uh, uh, adapted to you know these very two different you could be multiply adapted no you could be oh if, if it is a, if it is a general kind of an equivalent of amphibian kind of okay in land kind of okay in water <laughs> again i'm trying to abstract it <laughs> yeah well land and water that's that's too extreme i mean i don't <laughs> think <laughs> we have we have species that i mean for example amphibians they they spend part of their time uh, in water when they are larvae and then as adults they are on land uh but you don't have species that you know can live in both the places <laughs> yeah <laughs> at the same time uh but what i was talking about was uh, you know in many of the, these transition zones you actually have um, hybridization uh and these hybrids are probably better adapted uh to that kind of a, a, a habitat which is neither evergreen nor is it what do you mean better deciduous. adapted they're more robust against like shock events extinction events stuff like that or they're able to exploit the resources available better. in that particular habitat better you know than either of the two parental species right so uh, maybe we're making yeah. this a little impure for you shudipto but you know where we're going right i think we're on this transition zone this overlap areas yeah and when you analyze real estate markets of johannesburg or new york or whatever i mean yeah. you may like to draw a line and say this thing or that but are there overlapping areas yeah so you know i i'm fascinated to uh, another hear this. version of noise maybe but it's signals overlapping right, right? but there is also this really very related concept which is uh, basically uh, called you know these difference boundaries or the spatial boundaries as we like to call it and there's a whole sub discipline of spatial statistics i won't call it a huge sub discipline but a, a sub discipline nevertheless called wombling wombling uh, wombling and wombling basically means looking at rates of change of spatial distributions or over spatial processes and essentially that means like okay so you have this transition zone can i actually uh, you know these are by the way these are so connected i mean you brought up scale you brought up class string they're all connected but the whole idea is that at, i am usually observing spatial data at a coarser scale right than i would like to you know as statisticians we like to go as fine as possible in but general but if you had all the data you needed what would it look like i mean yeah like then then you know frankly speaking i could probably give much more precise uh estimates predictions and so on but but coming back to this you know since i have usually i don't have all the data given what i have i need to basically infer or try to figure out a certain what the uh, boundaries are you know what the boundaries are and and what where are the transition zones and so if you have one cluster here and then suddenly you see a, a very different type of cluster a little bit far away but there's a clear barrier between the two clusters that could come out as a difference zone. but a gap area is not necessarily a transition area it yeah, is yeah, not necessarily yeah, yeah. a transition area yeah. but you know that what it will do is it will actually tell you okay why is there that gap hmm. and then you will go out and figure out more data and then that data can help you a certain or conclude one way or the other 
whether that is a transition area or not. Some kind of application. So it's an iter- iterative Tomblin's process. Law. Yeah. I mean, I'll give you another example. You know, the entire uh, domain of spatial statistics, in some sense, is an iterative process in from the larger scientific context. If you think about disease distribution, since you brought up clustering. Clustering and disease clusterings, essentially, are extremely uh, uh, widely used by epidemiologists. Mm-hmm. Why do they do that? They basically, they come to the spatial statisticians and try to produce smoothed maps of clusters so that the clusters come out at them. So just as you look at temperature maps and heat maps, exactly. look at they look at disease maps. maps mm-hmm. you know, And then they basically question, why are the diseases or why are the clusters there? Why are the hotspots there? And some, in some cases, you know, they could say, oh, wait a minute, you know, these, uh, there's something in the environment that is causing higher rates of diseases in these regions as opposed to certain other regions. In some cases, it could be socioeconomic factors. So what they will do is they will then go back, collect data, put that into the model, into the signal part, and then again see if some of those hotspots disappear. And if they do disappear, then they can generate a hypothesis or essentially conclude perhaps right. that this is what is gener- the process, what is generating the process or what is a major factor in the process generating those maps. It's very similar with transition zones as well. I mean, you basically are going to create maps. You're going to try to figure out and even test hypotheses of whether there are difference boundaries or bound- spatial boundaries and then go back hypothesize and to test your hypothesis get more data and then you know uh, move forward and try to see if you can conclude uh, statistically with a certain level of statistical certainty or uh, confidence I should say uh, that uh, so what's the future why don't we end with that what's the future is it is it likely that the notion of place will get totally detached from um Will there be more places? I mean, how does one think of it directionally? Maybe for you, the time scale is millions of years, and maybe for Nikhil, it's 100, 200 years. I don't know what the time scale for Shridipto is. Well, for me, the time scale is whatever these guys will give to me. (laughs) (laughs) I I don't have the luxury of choosing the time scale. You know, that's chosen by them. Then they come to us and then they say, okay, can you help us model this? Praveen is going to send his students uh, out in the field. (laughs) Right. But I'll I'll, I'll, I'll start uh, uh, with my answer to your question. I think think this is a very, very important question as to what is the future because that is obviously uh, uh, what drives our research. Uh, For statisticians, you know, we are still, I will say we have made great progress in terms of embedding spatial data analysis within a very rigorous statistical framework. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and some stochastic processes, as we like to call them, have been devised and developed that are extremely robust to analysis that do much better. I think Praveen will agree that uh, statistical modeling of species has actually impacted uh, the the uh, this, the world of ecology and evolutionary biology quite a so bit. So for you, all the underlying processes are Gaussian? Uh, Gaussian processes are one of the mainstays. And although the name Gaussian usually is associated with a normal distribution, interestingly, Gaussian processes, of course, they're related very much to the normal distribution. They work on but, other sorts of distributions. But well. yeah, they're very robust. And then they, they, they Why can... Why is that? Does it surprise you? Well, you know, they, interestingly, they or are... Or is it just that the data is coarse? No, what yeah, an accidental so, fit. Right. So, what, what one of the rather remarkable features of Gaussian processes is that they are very effective multi-dimensional interpolators, 
And these have been studied at a very theoretical level as well as at a computational level and a practical level. And sure. basically, you know, using them, we have seen that when you are missing information, when information it's is incomplete, it is a beautiful way to interpolate. And so that interpolation future? property, rather than strictly speaking, the very nature of the normal distribution or the bell-shaped curve sure. is what actually has made it a mainstay, not only of spatial statistics, but also of modern machine learning. Excellent. What's you know? the future? So the future is trying to, uh, you know, build more flexible models to try to incorporate notions of non-stationarity. You alluded to stationarity earlier. Uh, of course, we don't have time to get into the details of that. But basically, you know, the distributions, the factors that lead to the manifestation of spatial data are extremely complex. Mm. And we have a long way to go in trying to uh, build better models and more flexible models, I should say, to actually help understand these features. And the one other major challenge we have, we love big data, we love uh, more information, but, you know, Gaussian processes, for example, as good as they are, they're expensive to compute. And so with more flexible models comes the challenge of devising better computational algorithms. That's where a lot of neat mathematics comes in as well. So that, I think, is the statistical challenges that we see. Over to you, Praveen. What's the future? Uh, future, um, well... Of, uh, of places, of habitats, of niches, of, uh, of whether there would continue to be this... It seems like there's some... You, you, you've not really said anything to that. I mean, you, you've said something, but this... Hmm very link between species and habitats is very real, no? Can I I just ask one uh, on this line? How about climate change and species? I mean, you know, would you think that is something that still needs a little bit more uh, research and understanding on our part? How is... I mean, as far as he's concerned, I think they've seen weirder climate changes. (laughs) So that's okay. Well, uh, for one, if you bring in climate change into your research program, Higher likelihood of getting funded. <laughs> well, okay, that, that's in India, <laughs> but no longer in the US, probably. But, 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 you know, I thought, hundreds of millions of years. This is this no, is but okay. this is uh, actually a very important uh, question because you know what what people are predicting is two to three degrees increase in uh, temperatures, right? Depending on which part of the world you're in, uh, and that's really so, going to so, change. So staying on yeah. that, would that lead? to yeah. more habitats, fewer habitats. Forget the fact that whether we exist or not, okay? I mean, yeah, it is one yeah. of many species. Not that it doesn't matter, of course, true, it concerns true. us. Yeah. But would it lead to... It depends, depends on the species that you're looking at, right? So if you have you have species that are um, really adapted to, uh, say, high uh, mountain peaks, right? But, but it's not possible to come up with a law or a strong hypothesis of sorts to say that, you know, if the temperature were three degrees higher on an average, one, one there can. shall be. Because you know all the species that exist today, you know, several. You yeah, know. yeah. So one can do it through uh, species distribution models, which, you know, uh, Sudipto would have be to go to somebody like Sudipto. Uh, uh, so we can uh, we can come up with uh, you know distribution models for, for species you know do you have, when do you have if an there's an increase huh? do you have an intuition on this of if the temperature was two or three degrees higher would there be more niches places habitats or fewer just directionally I think there would be fewer um, but uh, but then there will be more number of niches for certain dry zone adapted species. Uh, but the more sort of wet zone adapted species, there'll be a contraction of uh, niches, of habitats. 
बट बाय एंड लार्ज आई थिंक इट माइट लीड टू लोअरिंग द स्पीशीज नंबर स्पीशीज रिचनेस फ्यूचर निकल been very comfortable with the idea that place is desirable and place is always here what i mean to say is for a long time i think our ideas of place have been bound up with ideas of territory and permanence yeah and this comes out of like certain traditions in philosophy in the 17th and the 18th centuries um when a lot of this world was being um, explored and understood in in different kinds of ways through colonial projects and i think the challenge now particularly with climate change as you brought up is how might we think about place um as more fragile as not as permanent and yet habitable right and so what i think a few of us are trying to do is to try and think of place in a less territorial register there could be a way of preserving those relations mm-hmm. even if it is at a little bit of an expense of that geographic place yeah so what 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 might place with our roots look like um what might place in the sea look like um it's, it's something I'm, i'm very interested in exploring now so i think the the, the is idea- is it is it is it possible is it possible to have the notion of a place without the notion of a physical geographic root center soil land water maybe i i think it is possible i think it's a minor science so we don't know as much about it right um but i think there have been people who have been living different kinds of lives that aren't rooted in a particular place whether they're pastoralists or fishers um on either end right. um but that kind of life and living has not been historically valued um because we privileged settled agriculture and industrialization and so on and because all of these things are intertwined no capitalism property stability right. Right. circuits of circulation right. money all of that so, so some of the earliest liberal philosophers thinking about place as that where you put in your labor and extract value right i'm thinking of john locke's work here right um but what might place look like if you cannot make claims to a particular territory over time yeah um, that that's the question i don't have an answer to maybe in a few years but but i think that's kind of the way we're headed because climate change does not allow us the pretense of permanence it was always a pretense yeah but climate change does not allow us a pretense of permanence anymore right yeah um this is something that i think um about bi- biologists and ecologists and i've been aware for a while there's always dynamism and motion yeah. which is key to um speciation events as well so so how might we think about place without privileging the fixed and the permanent thank you thank you that's a good note to end this on thanks to all of you for making it and we look forward to having you soon again thank you thank you very much thank you, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. pleasure